If you can turn to Psalm 133, that's where we are this morning. Next week we uh, wrap up this mini-series of Psalms with uh, 139, and uh, then we jump into Esther. How many of you have ever heard a sermon series on Esther? That's two people, three, four, a couple, all right. Uh, I've never, I don't think, ever heard a sermon series on Esther, so um, I think it'll be timely in light of what's going on. All right, Psalm 133, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life, forevermore. Let's pray. Father, you have sent your word like the rain and the snow, and it will not return empty. May it accomplish uh, that which you propose, which you purpose, and it may, be, may it be effective in fulfilling your goals among us. Instead of thorns and briars, we ask that you would produce cypress and myrtle among us. Make us strong in Christ as we seek you, as we forsake our own way and our wicked thoughts, because your way and your thoughts are higher and greater and better than ours. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> family reunions. It's been a while since I've been to a family reunion. That's one of the perils I have of being on this side of the country and the rest of my family being on that side of the country. Uh, the time for the family reunion in my family is coming up quickly. Uh, two Sundays from now is when they will gather in North Andover, Massachusetts, on the old family farm, and they will eat all of those dishes I wish I could be there to eat, because everyone had their specialty, and it was usually good. Thankfully, we were not eating from the rabbits that were in the back, in the barn. It was better than that. But there was times when I was a kid, you know, I mean, you're, you're together with all of your cousins, and you're playing, and all kinds of games, and it's good. It's good to be together. It's good to enjoy one another's company and to hear one another's stories about what's going on in their lives. Family reunions are generally good things. Some of you might be disagreeing with me at that moment. We'll get there. <laughs> Our big idea this morning is uh, that Christ brings union and communion to his people. This is, as you, uh, if I had read the title of this psalm, a song of ascents of David. This is a pilgrimage song. And the idea that I believe is going on in this pilgrimage song is not that they're in the process of getting to Jerusalem for the feast, but they have arrived in Jerusalem for the feast. And it's like a family reunion because the 12 tribes are together 
once again. And they're rejoicing. And David, the psalmist, is glad. The first thing I want us to keep in mind as we look at this psalm is the unity of believers is indeed a beautiful blessing. It is a great thing. It is the feasts of Israel that helped unite these people who came from very different tribes in very different places, some in the mountains, some in the plains and valleys, uh, very different places, different regions, different economic classes. Some were rich and some were poor. God brought all of these people together for the express purpose of being gathered as his people to worship him as their God. And David starts off this rather short psalm with, Behold, or look, how good and pleasant or pleasing is it when brothers dwell in unity. And so he's seeing the feasts as the people dwelling in Jerusalem for a period of time, and dwelling with relative harmony, I would say. And he's delighting in it. He thinks it's the the good part of a family reunion. The time when you're sitting around the table and laughing at stories, or maybe even weeping at stories. But you're being drawn together with this group of people, and you are existing in harmony with one another. You are having communion with one another. So David looks and he sees this and he, he, in a sense, declares this as normative. This is the way it's supposed to be. We see the same idea carried about in, say, for instance, 1 John chapter 3. We know that we have passed out of life, uh, rather, out of death into life because we love our brothers. This is a normal part of what it means to be in Christ, to love our brothers. Now, David here in verse 1 kind of states this as a fact. And in verses 2 and 3, he gives us two illustrations to explain the blessedness of it, the pleasantness of it, the goodness of it. These are two pictures that are, from our perspective, probably a little strange. They were very meaningful in the life of Israel, but they are not as meaningful for us unless we do a little digging and thinking. Okay. So, the first one he has in verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. How many of you pour oil on your head? There is one. (laughs) Is it a good and pleasant experience? Apparently it feels quite nice. Okay, I'll have to remember that. I have thought about oiling my beard when it was longer, and um, I don't know if I'll ever get it long again. But there's a picture here that David wants us to understand or wants us to see, helps us understand the goodness and the pleasantness of this. 
And so the precious oil that he has in mind is a fragrant kind of oil. It smells good, which is why I would have put the oil in my beard so that it would smell good. Um, but also that idea of soothing that he mentioned. Especially when you live in a climate like this. Our kids have to lotion up. Well, a couple of our kids have to lotion up. Or their skin gets very dried out and ashen looking. And so they use not oil, but they do use lotion to restore moisture. And so there's something uh, that could be here about the soothing and restorative power of the oil upon the skin pointing to the heart of the people. But it's not just any head that this oil is poured upon. It is poured upon the head of Aaron, which is a little anachronistic because when David writes this, Aaron is long dead. And so he's really getting to the point of Aaron representing the priesthood, and in particular, the great high priest, which I think points us again to that reality of they're joined together in the worship of God under the leadership of the great high priest. That is part of why it is good and pleasing to be with them is because they are gathered together in worship and fulfillment of the covenant promise that you will be my people and I will be your God. I think part of what this points us to by using Aaron is the necessity we have of godly leaders to help us worship. That worship is not an accidental sort of thing. It's something that requires planning. It's something that requires effort and leadership. And so I'm thankful for the people who help lead us in worship in this congregation. They do a great job of planning the music. Okay, we don't just, uh, you know, play, um, open the hymnal and put our finger down. <laughs> and that's what we're going to, that's the song we're going to sing this week. And so they take stock of what we'll be doing and they do a great job planning. And so it's pleasing, it's delightful that that happens and that they're able to help us to worship our God. It's part of what I get out of this picture of Aaron. Secondly, we have the picture of Hermon, Mount Hermon. It is good and pleasant like the dew of Mount Hermon. Those of you who don't know, Mount Hermon is the highest peak in that land. It's it's almost 10,000 feet high, and so it is the only snow-capped mountain in the promised land. Okay? And being so high, there was far more precipitation in general, but also just the reality of increased dew in the morning. That whole joy of condensation, we get a little tiny bit of that here in Tucson, but not a whole lot. There on Mount Hermon, they got plenty. And so Mount Hermon, sort of like Mount Lemmon, was a far more lush place than it is down here in the valley. Similar idea, concept of what's going on there. But part of what is 
Additionally there is that this precipitation flows down the mountain, and so there's this image of it flowing on down to Jerusalem to refresh Jerusalem, which is necessary because Jerusalem was a place that during the summer months got almost no rain. There was no monsoon that ripped through. And so it was a parched place, and two of the feasts happen during that period where there's almost no rain. First fruits and tabernacles. Okay, and so uh, they're needing refreshment. And what David is basically getting at is they find refreshment. And it's as if the dew that collects on Hermon flows down the mountain, across the nation, and then into Jerusalem to refresh God. It's people. And so he is the one who is providing this refreshment for Zion, which in a sense is one of the many blessings that he has pronounced in declaring life forevermore. And so it's connected to eternal life, and it's one of the blessings we can experience now that he gives us. And so let's be reminded, as James was reminded, that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And that is one of the things that is repeated three times in this very short psalm, running down. Now, when you get to verse 3, which says, which falls, you've got the same word as you have in verse 2, which is translated running down. It's the same word. So there's this idea of running down, running down, running down. These blessings are coming down. They're coming down from God Himself to be poured out upon His people. And so this psalm reminds us of the beautiful blessing of unity among believers so that they might seek it. They might enjoy it when they find it. So what goes wrong? Sin and selfishness. Undue unity. That's the thing that's not here in this psalm. That's the thing that we find in the rest of the scriptures that help us understand this psalm. Okay? Sin and selfishness undue, undue unity. And I, because I wonder if the reason that this psalm is so short is precisely because unity or peace, communion, seems to be so short-lived. If we go to the family reunion, some of you might experience the crazy uncle who goes off on strange topics and ruins the fun. Hopefully, you don't have the crazy drunk uncle at yours. Okay, Those uncles were on my mother's side, not my father's side. So our family reunions were okay. All right, But there's always going to be a problem which emerges that seems to destroy the sweetness, the pleasantness of the fellowship that we are intended to enjoy. And we see that unity is not just a rare commodity in our country or in Christ's church in our country. Unity was a rare commodity in the life of Israel, and it started as early as Jacob and his sons. They didn't get along. They fought. 
They quarreled. Their relationship with one another was in many ways a relate a reflection of the relationship between their mothers who fought. We see this uh, peaking during, in one sense, in during the time of the judges, because a lot of that impression was localized. The judges were were judges over a tribe or two, not over the whole nation. And so basically, the other tribes ignored the oppression in one tribe by an outside power. And it culminates in the book of Judges in this little mini civil war that breaks out because of sin that took place in Benjamin and all the other nations, the other tribes came and made war against Benjamin. We see it again as they move toward this idea of, of having a king. And there's all sorts of conflict that takes place uh, because Saul was not a very good king. And God anoints David to be the king, but David's not the king yet. And there's division in the land between David and Saul. And even after Saul's death, we still see that this, this conflict continued for a period of time. And it's only in David's united reign that we sort of see a picture of this unity, of this peace, and it is short-lived. And why is it short-lived? Once again, sin happened. David sinned with Bathsheba and also sinned against Uriah. And so the prophet Nathan comes and says in 2 Samuel 12 that the sword will never depart from his house. Sin brings destruction and consumes communion. Eventually, the nation would split under the weight of regional interests as the tribes split. And so you had David, uh, sorry, Judah, the line of David in the south, and then you had basically the tribe of Ephraim or Joseph in the north, leading the rest of the tribes. And so you had that big split which necessitated the prophecy of Ezekiel that we saw in chapter 37, that one day God would reunite those tribes, those kingdoms, under one king, David, the son of David. So they had this promise of reunification that was there in the Old Testament, but we often live with the presence of that crazy uncle who disrupts the family reunion. And one passage that that comes to my mind in particular as I think about why we so struggle with enjoying fellowship is James 4. When James wrote to that congregation of uh, Jewish believers, the congregation was not good and pleasant, but it seems like the congregation was angry and bitter. As you read through James's letter, you find a, a lot of problems that he's addressing There are a lot of serious issues that are going on in the life of that congregation. And he really gets to 
the heart of the issue here in the beginning of chapter 4 when he says, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And so, what Paul talks about in Galatians 5, about the, the passions within us, with regard to the flesh and the spirit, is also true within the life of a congregation that there are conflicting desires in the life of a congregation. Some of them good and some of them bad. And they break the peace. They consume it. And so this process, I think, unfolds where you have conflicting desires, and because of those conflicting desires, you have at least one person engaging in a sinful action, which usually is met with a sinful response. And therefore, it furthers the disunity and destruction of the community. The people begin to devour one another, as Paul warned in Galatians as well it gets back to those conflicting desires. Let's put it this way. The difference between preferences and principle. We all have preferences, right? I prefer steak over fish, although I'm learning to like salmon. Preferences. Right? You might prefer something different. And so if you come to my house for dinner, I'll pro- we might ask you what you'd like so that we're not fulfilling our purposes for you, but we're, we're giving you what you like, what you prefer. Unless, of course, we're having ugly steak, then too bad for you. Okay? So let's think about this in the life of a church for a moment. I'm going to talk about that for a second. There's no reason why I'm talking about that, okay? But just that it's handy, we can see it, and a lot of people fight over it in other churches, okay? Preference says, well, you guys all have different preferences. Some of you like the organ. Some of you wish we played the organ more. Some of you don't like the organ and wish it would disappear. Some of you have no commitment either way with regard to the organ. All of those viewpoints are perfectly acceptable preferences. Your preferences are okay. The problem is, if you try to turn your preference into a principle, And you then say, I don't think we should have the organ. It is then, and shift that from that to, we should not have an organ, we will not have an organ. And conversely, you will have someone else who says, who shifts from, I think we should have an organ to, we must have an organ now with principle. And so you have the conflicting desires turning into conflicting principles. And now it's not okay to disagree. Now you have to win. 
because it's no longer a preference, but you've turned it into a principle. And that's unfortunately what happens in churches sometimes with regard to the color of the walls or the carpet or any number of things. People change their preferences into principles and destroy fellowship. Don't let your preference separate you unnecessarily from one another. But I'll give you the flip side of that. There are times when we have to let actual principles separate us when necessary. For instance, if I started teaching false doctrine on the basis of principle, you must remove me. You might like me, but if I'm teaching heresy, i got to go. That's real principle. And sometimes... You need to separate on the basis of principle. But don't confuse the two unnecessarily. That's what I'm saying. So, again, how does this kind of unfold? And really what I'm getting at here is that we start acting out of our identity in Adam. And that means that we tend to do what Adam did. And what did Adam do? He blame shift. Why did he eat from the fruit that he was told not to eat? Because of the woman you gave me, Lord. It's not my fault. It's her fault. And by extension, your fault. So we tend, unfortunately, to shift blame away from ourselves, meaning that we minimize our sin. And we also, conversely, maximize their sin. I see this all the time. I have four little people in my house. It's not limited to the four little people in the house. I wish it was. It's not. Um, I'm guilty of this as well. I will not throw my wife under a bus. Don't worry. But what happens is child A comes to us and says something about how child B has either said something or hit them, something like that. They're focusing, they're maximizing the other person's action. And usually, because we've, we've been parents for a while, we now start asking questions, and they're old enough to answer the questions. And what we usually discover, I would say about 75 to 85% of the time, is child A actually did something to child B first. Okay? They have forgotten what they have done, and they're focused completely on what the other child has done. That is living in Adam. That's what Adam does. He forgets what he has done and only what others have done and blames them. And so is destruction. Okay? So sin and selfishness undo the unity by elevating our preferences over everyone else's preferences. Let's get back to the good news. The gravity of grace brings peace from Christ to us. I'm going to talk about this in a couple of different ways of how the gospel helps us to restore the peace 
because Jesus brings peace. And the first is that Jesus is greater than Aaron. Jesus is our eternal great high priest who not just offered sacrifices, but who was himself the perfect sacrifice. The ones that Aaron offered could not take away sin. They were merely provisional, but Jesus' offering actually takes away sin. It actually removes the guilt. It removes the condemnation. And so Jesus, as it says in Ephesians 2, is our peace. And so He restores peace on this vertical level because He restores peace, first of all, between us and God. But part of the point of Ephesians 2 is that Jesus is also our peace, then horizontally restoring peace between peoples. And there in Ephesians 2, He talks about Jew and Gentile, but it goes beyond that. The dividing wall is torn down. And so all of these walls that we keep erecting through our preferences that we turn into principles can be taken down by Jesus so that we can enjoy peace with one another as we're intended to. So you don't need to fight about which way the toilet paper roll goes or any of that kind of stuff, you know. All these things that we can fight about that really ultimately aren't very important. And so we see from places like Romans 5 that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul does in the next paragraph is bring the audience back to Jesus died for us when we were helpless, when we were enemies of God, when we were ungodly sinners. And so he's reminding them of the doctrine of justification, which means that even though they continue to sin, they are at peace with God because of the sufficiency of Christ's death in their place. It doesn't matter just at the moment of conversion. It continues to matter throughout the rest of their Christian experience. And so every time I sin, I am not becoming God's enemy, but I still have peace with God because of the sufficiency of Jesus' work. And Paul has to say this because we forget this. When we sin, we tend to withdraw from God and act like He's our enemy. That now He has it in for us. And Paul is saying that is not true. We still have peace because of the sufficiency of Christ's work. It's not just that he's greater than Aaron, but we also see he's greater than David. Remember that prophecy from Ezekiel 37 talks about how God is going to reunite the people of Israel and they're all going to be under one king and that king is David, who of course at that point was dead, so therefore it means David's line, David's heir, the seed of David, fulfillment of the promise in in, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, all that good stuff. Jesus is going to do what David was unable to do because he's so much greater than David. 
David sort of held these people together for a little while as their king, but there were still problems, because you remember, hmm, the rebellion of Absalom. <laughs> kind of significant. Civil war under David's reign. There is none of, going to be none of that under the reign of Jesus. Okay? So as one who is greater than David, the greater king than David, he is able to bring about the peace that we so long for. Secondly, I want us to think about this idea of running down. I mentioned that it, it, this, uh, this word occurs three times in this very short psalm. Gravity is what moves oil down from the head to the beard to the robes. Gravity is what moves the dew down from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain and then inexplicably in this image to Jerusalem. Grace also flows down. Let us not forget that. In other words, he's not saying that we produce union and communion. They are something we receive. It's not like we do things and now we get peace. The peace comes from Christ above and flows down to us for us to enjoy. This is repeated in, in a different way in a sense in Galatians 5 when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is peace. We do not produce it, but the Spirit produces it in us because of the work in, of Christ for us. And so this peace that we enjoy is, again, one of the benefits of salvation that manifests itself for our good. Thirdly, we are united to Christ. We are a part of the body. There is unity in the midst of diversity, as we see in so many places like Corinthians and Ephesians 4 and Romans 12. This unity and diversity and that we are merely to maintain the peace that Jesus has produced because as Paul talks about in places, the ear does not say to the eye, I don't need you. Neither does it say, I hate you, go away. <laughs> they need each other. There's an interdependence that takes place. And that means that we are not all like one another. We have different preferences. We also have different gifts. We have different interests. And so just because your interest isn't the same as my interest doesn't mean that I don't need you and you don't need me. In order for everything to get done, we have to respect the interests of one another. Of how God has equipped you to do certain things that He has not equipped someone else to do. We must remember this. And so we're united to Christ, and therefore we are united to the rest of the body, not just to Him. And it's this as a reason for peace that we see in places like 1 Thessalonians 5. Be at peace among yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Acts 2. 
at the very end, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship or the communion, the koinonia, the group of people that made up the people of God. In other words, they devoted themselves to one another. So, we see in these places and more that we have the same Lord, we have the same faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we drink from the same Holy Spirit, and therefore we are to maintain the peace that Christ has purchased. We don't create it, but we do try to live in keeping with it. That's the idea. United to Christ, we enjoy communion not just with Him, but also with one another because we belong to one another, as it says in Romans 12. Romans 12 later on also says, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with one another. Okay, There's a limit to what I can do to maintain the peace, but I must do that. And part of what that is that I can do is admit when I'm wrong and forgive when I'm not. Let's get back, so to speak. We talked about our identity in Adam as a blame-shifting sinner. Well, we have a new identity in Jesus Christ. And that means that we are justified and united. And when we start to think in light of our unity or our new identity in Christ, that means that because I am justified, I am now free to admit my fault. I can look at the log in my eye. That's a very popular verse in our house these days. Removing the log from our eye so we can help others with the splinter that is in theirs, as Jesus talked about. And so, if I'm justified, I don't have to fear being wrong because Jesus has paid the price. I can admit it. I can admit my failure to the other, the person I'm in conflict with. And because I have received the forgiveness of God for my sins, when, when they admit their sins, I can forgive them. That's how we maintain the peace of the church. The seeking and the granting of forgiveness because of what Christ has done. That's how it unfolds. And unfortunately, many people struggle to do this. And so their families are in distress. Their churches are in distress. Far too often I see church conflict taking place as if we are still an Adam. And people leave angry. So many of the people I see leaving churches leave angry because they're not willing to admit well, either admit their own fault or forgive the fault of the other. They're living out their an identity in Adam instead of living out an identity in Jesus Christ. And they leave a, a trail of wreckage behind them. 
And I want us to be people who are living out our identity in Christ. So our union with Christ is at the center of the gospel. We receive no gospel benefits or blessings unless we are united to Christ and that by faith in Jesus Christ. One of the benefits that we receive in Christ is the communion of saints or the dwelling together in unity. You see, sin and selfishness are the tools of Satan to sabotage our communion and our gospel witness. But the finished and sufficient work of Christ maintain our union and rebuild our communion when we appropriate them by faith. We seek forgiveness. We forgive one another so that we can continue to dwell together in unity. So let's not lose sight of the gospel so that we can precisely experience how good and pleasant it really is in the midst of a world that is divided seemingly about anything and everything. That's part of the countercultural view of the church. Let's pray. Father, um, as we think about this, one of the key elements is faith. Whether we're trusting in the midst of conflict so that we walk in our new identity instead of our old identity. So Father, give us more faith. Help us in our unbelief. Father, help us as well to get the logs out of our eyes. To recognize the ways in which we fail so profoundly. And instead of running and hiding, help us to confess and receive mercy. Enable us then after that to help one another with the splinters in our eyes. so that we can all see clearly, we can all love one another. Father, give us wisdom to discern when something is really a preference and something is a principle, so we can act appropriately, so that we know when we can flex and when we have to stand, when we just need to let something go and when we need to press on. Help us to know that so that we're not destroying fellowship over something small. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.